Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Our guest today is Professor Gwyn Campbell, who I know needs little introduction to most of our listeners. Professor Campbell is the founding director of the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies. He is also the founding general editor of the Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. He is the author and editor of several books, including the recent monograph, Africa and the Indian Ocean World from Early Times to Circa 1900, published with Cambridge University Press in 2019. Today, he is discussing with us his forthcoming book, The Travels of Robert Lyell, 1790, to 1831, Scottish surgeon, naturalist, and British agent to the court of Madagascar, which we published in early 2021 with Palgrave. Professor Campbell, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So just to start us off, could you uh, introduce your book, Who Was Robert Lyle, and why write his biography? Yeah, well, Robert Lyle, um, a fascinating character to my mind. He was born in 1719 Paisley in uh, the lowlands of Scotland, um, which was a town that was renowned for its textile production. So it was a fully working class town. They were highly literate. They produced poetry, um, but they were also working class politically. So um, this, remember, was a tumultuous time. It was the time of the French Revolution. It was the time of the French Wars. And um, the working class in Paisley were decidedly um, on the side of the, um, of the French Republicans. So, um, and at the same time of Thomas Paine and the more liberal um, components of uh, the American Revolution. Now, this, of course, came at a time of, of warfare. General, um, the, the um, government in London was fighting a, a full-scale war f- um, against the French, and it turned into the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and Lyle would have observed all this. Um, he, he was constantly, throughout his life, a member of uh, literary and um, scientific um, organizations, and would have been fully aware of this. However, he was different. He wasn't working class. His father was probably, it's not clear from the archives, but it was probably um, a very well-to-do uh, merchant. And it appears again from the archives that Robert had no siblings. So he was the only child of a fairly wealthy family in a thoroughly working class town, which made him very different. Um, he nevertheless would have observed it. Um, there was a very large Gaelic-speaking contingent in Paisley. Um, remember, this had come just after the last uprising of the Jacobites in the Highlands, and they'd been dispossessed and were pouring in one direction across the Atlantic to Canada and the, um, the United States, and in the other direction down into Lowland Scotland um, and a large number of them congregated there. And again, he was a very observant person. He, this, this strikes you throughout that um, he would have noted this and um, that would have remained part of his inner character. 
although this wasn't manifest necessarily in, in all that he did. He went to the local grammar school, which was had a high reputation. And from the grammar school, at the wonderful age of 11, entered Edinburgh University to study medicine. And I have these pictures of this little 11-year-old strolling around the wards of Edinburgh University in a, in a white gown and a stethoscope and prodding patients. Um, so he studied medicine there. It was a kind of a bit of a free-for-all. Um, and yet Edinburgh had the highest reputation at the time for medicine. So for those intelligent students with a keen interest in medicine, and Lyle was one of those, they would have benefited enormously. Although there were, there were many other students there who were there just um, really to pass their time during the wars and, and, and get a fairly cheap degree. Um, you didn't necessarily have to get a degree. He left and went to Manchester to a specialist surgery, um, surgical unit um, to study before actually obtaining his degree from Edinburgh. But in Manchester, and again, this sheds some light upon his character, he was in, Manchester was one of the largest working class um, centers of the Industrial Revolution at the time. And he'd have seen many industrial injuries and have um, basically operated on such patients. So he'd have gained incredibly in experience as a, as a medical doctor. Um, but he was a he was a he was a polymath. He he at the same time as doing this, um, he was a keen naturalist. He went out. He uh, started his collection, famous collection of mushrooms. He virtually catalogued every mushroom in Britain, every every species of mushroom. Um, he collected flowers. He collected stones. He 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 was he had incredible curiosity. After two years in Manchester, he returned to Paisley, um, got his degree from Edinburgh, and set up practice in the main street in Paisley. And in 1812, married um, a woman called Mary, who was the daughter of a, a, a Scottish um, emigrant to Russia, to Imperial Russia. Um, he was, in fact, a gardener. And Russia at the time, the elite in Russia, were importing foreign gardeners um, like you cannot believe. They, they, were, they were construct, they had ample resources and they were constructing gardens on um, scales that they liked in Western Europe. So he went out um, to create what they termed, in inverted commas, English gardens for the Russian aristocracy. And his daughter had come back to Britain, possibly, it's conjecture, but possibly to advance her education, although girls at that time did not normally get advanced educations. But she may also, her parents may also have sent her back to escape the outcome of the French march on Moscow and the burning of Moscow in 1812. Um, that could well have been one of the motivations. But anyway, uh, three years after their marriage, Lyle and Mary upped and went back to Russia. And that was the first time for him, but it was a return for her. 
and he continued his studies in various academies in Russia, um, obtained the degrees and served as a doctor, private doctor to members of the Russian aristocracy. And um, in that role, he was hardly employed at all. It appears that the Russian aristocracy were fairly fit. And so he spent his time actually researching and writing a history of Russia, or several histories, in fact, one of Moscow, uh, one of the Russian aristocracy, um, but made the mistake of telling people, a perfectly normal reaction, I suppose, but telling people what the content of his book, his manuscript was. Um, it was a mistake because he was highly critical of the Tsar and the Russian aristocracy, and words soon spread in the small aristocratic circles in Russia. And he went off for a trip to Odessa, came back, and decided that the atmosphere was turning heavily against him, so that uh, he was afraid of political incarceration. And he basically fled. He returned to Britain and set up. Um, he must have been quite wealthy by then. He'd, he'd accumulated sufficient funds from Russia to set up a private establishment in London. Um, but interestingly, um, he published his book within a very short time after returning. And his book, being highly critical of the Tsar and of the aristocracy in general, um, was very much in tune with, in Britain, the Whig Party and the movement for reform. And they sort of grabbed Lyle as their spokesman. He became the, um, quite literally, the, the spokesman for reform, um, and reform not just in Britain, but it was against the aristocracy and the aristocratic privileges across Europe in general. Um, for his troubles, the Tsar banned him from ever going back to Russia. Um, he retorted that he never wanted to go back to Russia. but. Um, continued in that vein, and um, immediately there you see another side of Lyle coming to the fore, which was that he loved publicity. Um, he relished the role of being the advocate for reform um, on a kind of world scale, the world being then Western Europe, um, and he went out and he seized every possible occasion in the press, which was um, talked about America being divided. At the time, it was between the Whigs and the Tories in Britain. And the Whigs embraced him, gave him ample opportunity to write articles, etc. Um, and he relished this. But unfortunately for Lyle, the Tories won the 1826 election. So he'd been banking on the Whigs winning and him therefore procuring um, a very well-paid position under the Whigs, um, possibly in the Navy as a, as a surgeon. But now that the Tories had won, he was out of joints. Um, but he had certain people within the Tory party who actually favoured him, who looked uh, benevolently upon his views, upon Russia, etc. And these tended to come from the kind of evangelical side of the Tory party. And he campaigned vigorously with, with them. And at the time, um, the British agent, uh, resident agent at the 
court of Madagascar had just died, a man called James Hasty, and they offered the position to Lyle, who eagerly grasped it. Um, and in 1827, he sailed as the second British resident agent at the court of Madagascar in Antananarivo. In doing so, he was suddenly a kind of um, spokesperson for the Whig party and for the monarchy and for the aristocracy and all the things that he previously railed against. So he did this neat transformation and shed all his previous liberal views and became an arch-Tory, an arch-monarchist, um, an arch-conservative. Um, not only that, but he changed his attire to suit. So before going out, he went heavily into debt. And remember, he'd been a surgeon, so he'd accumulated quite a bit of money. He was pretty wealthy. He went heavily into debt in order to buy, purchase, what he considered to be the appropriate attire for a diplomat. And I don't know where he shopped in London, but he went out with this enormous wardrobe of, of, of um, goods that to make him appear um, the proper representative of the British crown in Madagascar. He had a brief meeting with Radama the first of Madagascar, in which he um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very brief meeting, um, in which he tried to persuade Radama, who had just previously rejected an alliance with the British, um, and for reasons that um, the British had in eighteen twenty negotiated a treaty with him in which he agreed to ban the slave trade in return for uh, shipments of arms and money that would enable him to conquer the entire island. His, his kingdom was then very small. It was in the center of the island. However, the compensation the British gave him wasn't sufficient. And the military adventures he embarked on to conquer Madagascar proved exceptionally expensive, both in terms of money and in terms of human lives because the mariner uh, did not carry the sickle cell anemia, which protected them against malaria, which um, killed thousands of them on the, on the coast, the coast that they were trying to conquer in Madagascar. Anyway, so Lyle tried to persuade Radama to come back into the British alliance. He believed that he had done it, um, went back to Mauritius for what they called the bad season, the malarial season, because he didn't want to catch malaria. And the following year returned with his family, um, which by then was something like, I think, six children, um, plus servants. He had accumulated a lot of servants, plus some, would you believe, government slaves that they gave him from Mauritius. Um, so a huge party. Um, and then he carried all his scientific goods, his, his naturalist goods, because in London, they'd been impressed with the fact he was a naturalist and knew about Madagascar's reputation as a kind of floating museum. Something like over 90% of its flora and fauna are unique. And they wanted information about this and they wanted samples and they entrusted him with 
uh, that particular task. So he arrives in Madagascar in August 1828 and reaches the capital, Antananarivo, literally days after Radama had died. And Radama's successor, a woman called Ranavalana, maintained Radama's stance on the British alliance. In other words, she thoroughly rejected the British alliance and in no uncertain terms, she told him that she rejected his claim to be the British resident agent at her court. He found this extremely embarrassing. He didn't, um, he fought it. He tried to maintain his status, both vis-a-vis -vis the Queen and the British community in Madagascar, which comprised mainly missionaries. The London Missionary Society had established a mission there with the British Alliance in 1820. Um, but Lyle, um, a part of Lyle's character came to the fore in Madagascar, which was that he was exceptionally stickly. He, he or prickly rather, he um, had inflated opinions about his position and his status, and he believed that he was rightly entitled to demand things of the queen that she wasn't willing to give. For example, he wanted written letters from her. She would only give him oral messages. Um, he wanted the missionaries to bend to his will to do what he said. He wanted to be, in effect, the supervisor of the LMS mission. And the senior missionaries there, there were two Welshmen, one called Jones, one called Griffiths, utterly refused to let him do it. And it got to the stage where he was in a fracas with them all, with the Merina court and with the missionaries. It got extremely ugly. And in the end, Ranavalina decided to expel him. She just couldn't stand him being there any longer. Um, and the pretext for that was him going out and collecting natural specimens. He sent, in fact, one of his slaves, a government slave, to collect natural specimens, flowers, um, also birds, animals, rocks. And she said, she called it sorcery. And she said he had supernatural powers and he was also, um, he, he was measuring rainfall, he was um, investigating the stars. So it was easy for her to lay an accusation that he was a sorcerer against him. And her more conservative counselors backed her and he and his family were expelled. They returned to Mauritius where he, is, he tried to keep up the pretense of being the British resident agent at Madagascar, but he was now resident in, in Mauritius and unable to get any first-hand information. But he'd also in Madagascar caught malaria. And he got weaker and weaker. And within a short period, he died of malaria. And I finished the story by looking at his wife and her claims as now an impoverished widow with something like eight children trying to claim money from the British government to sustain her. And they did eventually settle on a small sum, which she claimed was insufficient to keep her on Mauritius. Um, 
there's records of her until something like 1833 and then the record goes quiet apart from one daughter who's um, um, whose descendants believe it or not ended up in Canada and they're the only kind of record we have so if anyone listening to this podcast has any information about the Lyles of Mauritius in the early 1830s I would love to hear from them wonderful Greg uh, thank you very much for that um, this is clearly a very singular man my first question though is about the broader context and the context that you um, actually wrote this book in. Um, we live in an age in which the role of big white men in history, particularly in histories of the global south, of slavery and of imperialism, is becoming an increasing scrutiny, not just by historians who you might be saying um, have been doing this for decades, but in, particularly in, in now also by activists uh, and by the popular press. And I wondered if this kind of context affected the way you thought about Robert Lyle's biography uh, and how you read the primary sources and then how you wrote it as well. To some degree, I mean, it's, it's mainly sort of um, my interest in him was sparked by my initial, I did a PhD on Madagascar, the economic history of Madagascar, and my interest was sparked by finding these references to him, the fact he was expelled for sorcery, which is um, pretty major. And then it's only sort of latterly, I did a, a lot of um, research on Mauritius and in London in the archives on him, um, that his attitude to servile peoples and his class attitude, which is um, pretty staggering and his conversion to being an arch Tory and the spokesperson going from being, you know, a, 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 a Scotsman in favor of liberalism and reform to being an arch Tory. It's only latterly that that came to the fore. Um, and it's those aspects. There's very little that he writes about people of color very little that he writes about the Malagasy in general. He had very little interest in their culture. So I suppose he's the archetypal white male, the sort of person that would be struck down immediately in, in our day and age. Um, but what he, his attitude to serve our people, his attitude to, uh, one of whom, by the way, um, a black slave in Mauritius committed suicide. And it was partly because of the severity of his treatment of her. Um, he faced a court case because of it. Um, the British authorities took him to court and he got fined. Um, he didn't like that, but he had turned into quite a nasty man at the end of his life. Um, one also, always, of course, regrets the fact of anyone dying of malaria, but he, he, had, he had come to represent um, very right-wing views, very racist views, uh, very um, class-ridden views. And he was contemplating, just before he died, becoming a planter a um, on, a, on a sugar um, um, plantation in, in Mauritius, which would have carried with it all the connotations of a slave owner, because that's, that was before 
the abolition of slavery came in 1835. He would have had to face that had he lived, but nevertheless, he wasn't against using slave labor. Thank you very much for that. One of the things that, um, that really comes through in this biography is this massive shift from um, supporting the Whig party and being very much accused of being a radical as well uh, in London uh, to being supportive of the Tory establishment. I just wondered, um, as much as you can, to what can you ascribe this dramatic shift? It's tempting to say um, the failure of the Whigs to win the 1826 election. Um, but there was obviously something within Lyle which yearned for recognition. I mean, he, he wasn't unique. Many, many missionaries who came from very poor backgrounds, working class backgrounds, peasant backgrounds even, um, were trans once they went into the mission field, found that they were representing the imperial might of Britain, and they too converted to, um, they found the new status extremely appealing. It's something which is attractive to, to human personalities. You know, a higher status, the ability to um, basically trumpet over others. And I think this particular inclination in Lyle was elevated. Um, he, he had this from birth and it just came out. So then the flip question to this is, considering his reputation as uh, a Whig radical, why would the Tory establishment appoint him as a British agent abroad? Interesting question. Um, a number of reasons. One is that the Tory party, no, no political party is united. And the Tory party had two wings. One of the wings was evangelical, was very much in favor of, um, reform in the empire and remember this is just before the 1832 uh, reform act when the aristocrats basically uh, permitted a wider franchise in order to keep in power so there were there were elements in the aristocracy who knew the game was up and they had to give something to um, ensure their continued support and dominance of parliament they weren't going to crack under a revolution they, they were there were sufficient number who realized they had to um, had to compromise now given that there were these individuals um, they had and I, I think that they were in in certain key positions of power and they were also fairly eclectic they realized that they had in Lyle a polymath he was brilliant he was a surgeon so he was a medical man, but he was also an extremely good naturalist. He was exceptionally curious, but exceptionally good, very, very bright. He spoke, I don't know, five or six languages. He, he, was, um, he was very, very clever. And I think what they contemplated was someone who had a wide political perspective because he'd been in in Russia he'd written these books about the continent so they thought that would do as a diplomat and then he had this other side to him this this scientific side which they thought if we're going to crack open the treasure house that is Madagascar 
what better man than Robert Lyell? And remember, he was a prolific writer. This guy, he, you couldn't stop him writing. God knows where he found the time to do it, but he, he wrote and wrote and wrote. He was erudite. So I think maybe for those reasons. That's interesting. It's interesting that you note that he's arguing, you're arguing that, that he viewed Madagascar very much as a treasure trove. When I read the, the, the biography, um, I was very much more of the thinking that they're just trying to get him out of the country. Like, here's a <laughs> radical. Here's a radical. Let's get him as far away from here as absolutely possible under pretense of um, giving him this ostensibly um, prestigious position. Um, we nearly come to the end of the time. I'm going to ask um, one more question. Um, from the outset of the biography, you, you paint him um, very much as a somewhat singular man. He's possibly the only child of a well-to-do merchant. He's very much an outlier from the beginning. Uh, and also very much he's an outlier for the way he managed to move through, um, I suppose, Scottish, London, Russian, and then Malagasy, and elsewhere in the Western Indian Ocean circles. I think that's a pretty unique career and life arc. Um, and I think that informs much of um, yours and I'm sure your future readers and fascination with him. Um, but given the singular nature, what does his life tell us about broader themes? Um, there are many things I could ask you about here and I, I don't want to answer all of these um, for fear of taking too much of your time, but um, perhaps one of them. Could you, could, what does his life tell us about, I suppose, Scot Scottish people in the diaspora in Russia? or about Whig ideas in Britain in the 1820s, or about the British imperialism in the Western Indian Ocean world in the 19th century. Does his life really speak to, the, to, these broad, to some of these broader themes? Oh, I think definitely. I think his life encapsulates all the political and economic turmoil of the early 19th century in Britain. Um, there's no better, I think, person um, and particularly given his travels, uh, that um, can in fact illustrate what was happening and the huge um, political revolutions that were happening. This this was a time of of major revolutions. It led up, you know, to the um, 1848 revolution in in Europe. Um, it happened earlier in a quieter sense in in Britain, but. Um, he was a remarkable man who reflected pretty much everything that was going on at the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Professor Campbell, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, that is all we've got time for. Um, thank you also to Rene Mandeville, who has, been working, who has been working in the background to produce and to make sure this recording goes smoothly. Um, once again, um, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.